The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You are listening to Squawk Ident an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 18 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 14th of January, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, Aviator Tony outlines a sequence reassignment and Latin American terrain requalification for Legacy Airlines. The sequence involved three days consisting of four deadheads. That's right, four deadheads. We will talk about the differences between jump seating, non-revving, and deadheading. Two of the deadheads were from the passenger cabin, which involved some in-flight entertainment that we will discuss. And yes, more from the segment entitled Passengers Behaving Badly. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show right after a brief word from our sponsors. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. And I've got to say, it's been a busy week of flying. Well, that is, I didn't actually manipulate the controls of an aircraft in the last seven days, and I'll explain why that is. Uh, but first, let's recap episode 17. Episode 17 was a pretty interesting show. I dove into why now is a great time to seek out a career in aviation. With the looming retirements on the horizon, a lot of articles have been written in the past few years in reference to uh, the numbers and how they keep getting more and more impressive. Uh, There is a rumor out there uh, amongst the aviation community that the FAA is considering upping the age of retirement from the current age of 65 to something a little higher. Uh, The rumor is 67 and a half, and then maybe a few years after that, even as high as 70. And that's usually an interesting way to come up with a a topic of discussion while you're on the line uh, to talk about, hey, what do you think of this retirement age going up? Um, Mixed uh, information there uh, about if it's really going to happen, if uh, it's something that we can expect or anticipate here in the next 12 months or so. Uh, But right now, I haven't heard a thing. Uh, I believe the new FAR book comes out pretty pretty soon. So if uh, it's not in there, uh, then I would assume that we'd have another year before that change, but you never know. So if you have an interest in that kind of topic, check out episode 17. But let's move on with uh, with this show. So this week was interesting. As I mentioned, uh, I was supposed to do a four-day trip that included uh, a flight LA to LaGuardia, spend the night in LaGuardia, and then uh, head down towards Miami and then end up in Quito, which is in Ecuador. But I noticed a couple days prior to the trip that I was removed from the flying. And I kind of had a sinking suspicion on what was going on. Uh, I knew that every 18 months, uh, both first officers and captains here at Legacy Airlines have to get requalified for uh, Latin terrain qualification. And what that is, is, of course, uh, Latin America has many, many mountain ranges that, you know, far exceed what we have here in Northern America. So flying to a destination down there, you have to have uh, things and that you prepare for, like 
uh, depressurization routing. Uh, if you're at 37, 38, 39,000 feet and you have a rapid uh, depressurization or some kind of depressurization, you have to descend as soon as possible. Uh, you know, the preferred altitude is 10,000 feet so that your passengers, uh, you know, have a useful air that they can breathe without assistance. Um, so to get from 37,000 down to 10,000 feet is pretty important. But if you have mountains that, you know, range in the high 20s, if not higher, uh, that could be a problem. So you have to have very specific training on the Latin terrain. So before you can fly down there uh, or come close to these, you know, mountainous areas uh, that you need to be checked out. Now, I did my initial qualification for Latin terrain during my international training uh, at the beginning or the onset of my career at Legacy Airlines. And 18 months later, which was uh, back in January of this month, and then they need to requalify me. Now, it's a little different between left seat, right seat qualifications. Uh, in reference to Latin terrain, the captain has to be uh, actually manipulating the controls, flying the aircraft with a check airman in the right seat. Uh, but the first officer can get checked out while observing in the jump seat, the cockpit jump seat. And because the check airman is sitting there explaining what's going on and you're all kind of following along at the end of it, you know, the check airman says, hey, do you have any questions? Is there anything else that I can help uh, with your requalification? And you know, if none of us have any questions, then that's it. We get the seal of approval and we're good to go. Now, originally, my uh, my sequence that was going down to, to Quito, uh, I was going to be with the Czech airman. They were going to put me in the jump seat for that leg down there and then, you know, qualify me and then fly back. But for whatever reason, uh, quals or uh, qualifications department didn't uh, have a check airman for us, or they just felt that that was not productive. So they removed me from that flying uh, a couple of days before. And within a few hours, I got a phone call that I was going to be put on a three-day trip a day later than what my original trip was going to start. And I was going to fly with a check airman and in the jump seat and get requalified. But instead of going to keto, we were going to go to Colombia. So the trip uh, started out in LA. It was a deadhead to Miami, and we'll kind of get into what deadheads are. For those of us that uh, are in the industry, we all understand what deadheads are. But you know, for all my listeners there that may not be uh, aviators in the uh, the 121 world, we'll kind of dive into what a deadhead is and how what it consists of. But so I deadheaded from LA to Miami, basically sitting in the passenger cabin, uh, positive space seat, and. Got to Miami uh, around 5.30 in the evening on the 11th and went to the hotel. Got in, got cleaned up, went and grabbed some Cuban food. It was actually a pretty nice uh, meal for those that uh, follow on the social media, Instagram, Facebook, for Squawk Ident. I put a couple pics up there of you know, my, my evening meal. Um, and it was fun. It was it was great meal and then pretty relaxing. Got back to the hotel, got ready for the next day. So on the 12th, uh, early morning flight, departed out of Miami. We ended up about 30 minutes behind schedule, partly because there was a late inbound flight. And then, uh, we, you know, as we we're getting ready to go, of course, there was a a catering snafu where when you're going into international flying like this, you're probably not going to get catered at your destination. And if it's a turn like this, you fly out and you fly back and you have to have enough provisions, uh, water, snacks, meals, what have you, for both both legs, the round trip. So 20 minutes prior to departure, our number one flight attendant or a purser said, hey, you know, they gypped the rear galley with a cart and they accidentally put two first class carts, one in the front, one in the back, and they need enough provisions of water to come back. And we don't have that right now. So of course, you know, contact operations, let them know what's going on. And they said, okay, so the catering truck will, will come back out and get you the right cart. 
So that took a little bit. And once that was completed and we were all boarded up, we verified the routing, the fuel and everything, we were good to go. So that's why we were about 20 minutes behind schedule. These are the kind of things you constantly have to you know, adjust because if you're going from a U.S. destination to a U.S. destination, odds are, you know, if you're missing a, a provision, you could pick it up at your destination or you, it's a relatively short flight. But when you're flying four or five hours, you know, to a destination and then you got to fly another three or four hours back, you know, if you don't have enough for the round trip, you, it could be a problem, especially with water. So we got ready to go out of Miami and on our way over to Pereira. Colombia, uh, or Matacana, Matacana. Um, never been there before. It was my first time. Airport elevation, not too bad at uh, 4,418 feet. Uh, identifier for those of you who like to uh, Google or follow along on Jepson charts or whatnot. It's a Sierra Kilo Papa Echo or uh, Papa Echo India for the identifier. And it, it was a really cool trip. Uh, the routing was interesting. Uh, we Flew southbound out of Miami, uh, heading on over towards Cuba. We overflew Cuba, uh, Ciego de Avia VOR, uh, Uniform Charlie Alpha, and kept going southbound. Our routing then took us over the Sangster VOR or Sangaster, however, however they say that over there in Jamaica, and uh, continued southbound over the Caribbean Sea. Uh, really clear views uh, that day. Took us down over Cartagena and then continued southbound towards Medellin and then finally Pereira or Pereira, however they however they say it there in Colombia. And it was it was a relatively straightforward uh, trip. It didn't get tricky until we started our descent. And the tricky part there is all the MEAs, uh, minimum in route altitudes. Now, these are sector altitudes. If you look at a chart, an aviation chart, they'll have these boxes. And inside these boxes are either green or brown sector altitudes or minimum in route altitudes, moras, grid moras. Um, and they're, depending if you're looking at government charts or Jepson charts, and in the area around the airport, the uh, the minimum sector altitude or the grid mora is 19,600. 19, that means you have mountainous terrain and you have 2,000 foot clearance between the mora and the obstacle beneath you uh, or the mountain. So it, that's high elevations. Uh, the the arrival is not too tricky, but you have to pay attention, obviously, because if you go below, you know, and the, and the controllers will clear you. They'll clear you to, you know, descend via the arrival and down to a low altitude. And if you're not careful, you could uh, meet up with some cumulus granitus. <laughs> this is not good. So, yeah, it, relatively tricky and an impressive uh, grid moras as well. So you can see that there's good reason that you need to have an additional qualification in order to fly down there for uh, legacy airlines. Now, language barrier is always an issue when you're flying international. Uh, they do speak English, obviously. That's the international language that's the required for uh, aviation. Uh, however, you know, a lot is lost in the accent. And, you know, thankfully, uh, our Czech airman was well qualified, uh, very fluent, uh, in the in the phraseology and the language, so he was able to kind of clarify when the captain and I both kind of looked at each other like, well, "What did they just say?" <laughs> so he's like, "Oh, they just said this," and um, you know. So and then there were a few instances where he even even our Czech airman was asking for clarification because you know they are not fluent in English to the point where if you go outside of the standard phraseology. It, they might have to to think a minute to give you these instructions. And, you know, you really are responsible for your terrain clearance and everything, even if you're an IFR flight plan when you're international. So the training was full of information. It was rather tiring as well because, you know, here we are, we get there, uh, relatively quick turn, about a 45 to 55 minutes since we were just a little bit behind schedule. And we boarded up the aircraft and turned around, came back to Miami. So I sat in the jump seat both ways. 
um, and that's the cockpit jump seat. And once we got into Miami, uh, my captain says, well, hey, you know, I'm not going to use the crew hotel. I'm going to catch a flight home. I can I can get home here in the next couple hours. And I said, okay, you know, and I start looking at flights as well because I thought, well, uh, why should I spend the night in Miami if I'm just going to deadhead back tomorrow? I can get released from crew scheduling and just go home earlier. And, of course, I had two chances. Both flights were overbooked, oversold, and I didn't want to sit in a cockpit jump seat for another five and a half hours because I've been sitting in jump seats for two days and it just, it's tiring. It's, it's exhausting actually. You know, I can understand for a day, you know, to get around and get recalled. I get it. But if I didn't have to do it, you know, here I had a positive space ticket the next day, the next afternoon, I might as well go get a good night's rest. That way, you know, I can catch a flight, get a, get at least a, some entertainment or a nap in on the flight. And then when I get to LA and have to hop in the car and drive home, I'm not going to be worried about, am I going to, you know, fall asleep, be tired on the way home. So that's what I chose to do. So I spent an additional night in Miami, another great meal, uh, this time at the hotel, a little different hotel than I used the night before. And, uh, next day woke up, uh, refreshed, got to the airport, had breakfast, went to my favorite little restaurant in the Miami international airport, which is La Careta. And from there, I had a pretty nice like, steak and eggs, I think it was, and uh, hopped on a flight to come back home. Now, positive space deadhead ticket means I'm a working crew member. Uh, although I'm not in the cockpit, I'm in the back and I'm getting paid to get me back to base because it's the company's responsibility to get me back to base. And it was going to be a full flight actually it was oversold and there were plenty of non-revs to get on to. And I know for some of you, some of these terms are kind of foreign. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that now. So let's talk about jump seating, non-revving and deadheading. So the first thing I like to talk about is deadheading. So I had to get to Miami in order to catch that flight the next day. Now, because I live in LA, I'm based in LA, that flight is a good five and a half hours to get me into Miami. And then I really wasn't legal to do anything else because it does count as being on duty because I'm a working crew member, uh, even though I'm sitting in the back. Now, that is what a deadhead is. You're not at rest, but you are a working crew member, so they have to give you a positive space seat. Now, if I was going from LA to an international destination, then the company is responsible not only to give me a seat in the cabin, but whenever possible, I need to be in a first class seat because it's international, it's going to be a longer flight, and they've the contract allows for them to issue us a first class seat. But because this was domestic, they're not required to do that. And since they're not required to do it, it's, just, it's not going to happen because there's so many people you know, on upgrade lists nowadays. There's no way. Even when you're traveling on vacation, there's rarely do you get a first class seat. You'll be lucky if you do. So a deadhead is when the company pays for you to get from point A to point B because they need you to be somewhere in order to do your duties and uh, flying or observing or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. So my deadhead, the first one of the trip was LA to Miami, as I mentioned earlier. And what was interesting about this is I got a seat kind of way back in the airplane row, I think it was 33 or something like that. And got an aisle seat, which is what I prefer. So I can get up, stretch my legs and use the restroom. Not have to bother people um, to do that. And here I was relaxing. We were just about ready to take off. And I thought, well, you know, it's a late morning flight. I'm good to go. I just had a good meal. I'm just going to plug in some headphones and watch one of these movies. And I did. Uh, I saw a couple movies, which we'll talk about later. But uh, as soon as we took off, I mean, not even five minutes after departure, the gentleman that was in the seat in front of me decided to recline his seat. Now, Proper etiquette for the cabin is you look back, make sure that the person behind you isn't, you know, leaning forward or has a, a hot beverage on their tray table or something, whatever. You always look back and then recline slowly. And I 
have kind of a personal minimum or maximum, I should say, that I recline, which is about halfway. I don't like reclining all the way back when I'm in coach because I know that the guy behind me or the gal behind me is going to have the back of my head or the back of my seat in their face. And that's just, that is the way it is. And if it's a day flight, I, I, you know, like I said, I do my best halfway back. I'm very cognizant. I don't go back slowly. Um, this guy just slammed his seat full speed to the stop in like inches from my face to the point where you can barely even focus on the monitor that's in front of you. They have the, the LCD monitor that has an entertainment system in it. So okay, I thought that was relatively rude, but you know, Hey, it is what it is. I'm in uniform. Uh, and, and there's another, you know, topic of discussion. A lot of, a lot of guys don't, and gals don't commute in uniform. They change in the bathroom. They put on a sweatshirt or they put something on to take off their uniform because, and, and I totally agree with this. Uh, it prevents people from bothering you. Uh, and it prevents a possible security situation, especially if you're going international and you're deadheading, because if you're in uniform, you're a target. So, you know, there are different reasons. A lot of guys just don't want to be bothered. It's not like we're sitting there drinking or anything because you're not allowed to do that while you're deadheading. But there's just a more kind of calm way to deadhead and relax. But this wasn't the case. I, I went in full uniform because when I go through uh, security, if you're not in uniform and you're deadheading, you're, you're going to get selected for a random search. It's just, it is what it is. And I, I try to prevent that. So... Uh, simply because it's a hassle, it takes time. And if I get selected, I get selected, fine, so be it. But um, then it's a question of, well, what are your liquids? How many how many ounces of liquids do you have? If you're not in uniform, you have to abide by the, the three point whatever ounces. And I just don't want to bother with that. So I always, I always go in uniform. So here I was, a guy reclines his seat. Uh, fine, is what it is. I watched a couple movies because <laughs> we had the time. Uh, was offered some snacks and and you know, a bottle of water. It was it was a very relatively relaxed. Other than that incident, it was very relaxing. Deadhead. When I got to Miami, I, I felt great. One other incident happened on that flight that was annoying. Previous episodes, uh, I've talked uh, multiple times about long PAs. You know, just these long ass PAs that some people just feel compelled. To give now, PAs are important. Uh, you know, we want to inform our passengers constantly when something is not quite uh, going to the schedule. So, you know, I, we're taking a delay because we're waiting for late bags or we're maintenance on the airplane, and this is what's happening. And you know, we want to try to keep everyone informed. That's great, but a PA in route, forty-five minute intervals indicating to the people what state we're flying over completely unnecessary and for whatever reason the captain of this particular flight for legacy airlines decided that on the pre-departure pa he gave a long pa about you know the routing the weather the the fuel that you know we had to get a little extra fuel because of the weather that was going on around dallas area and hey that's great you know, that, that explains why, you know, we had to wait for an additional fuel and get a revision to our routing. And and he gave the entire route, which I don't mind that. I actually find that interesting on a pre-departure PA. After we were airborne and every 45 minutes after that, we were getting regular updates. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, we're over... Uh, currently over the panhandle and uh we're gonna change our route again and now we're gonna fly south over towards here, here and there and and uh we have you know four hours left in the flight and 45 minutes later it was oh ladies and gentlemen we're over this you know here and we have uh three hours and 15 minutes left in the flight and we got this every 45 minute interval countdown hi ladies and gentlemen we have one hour left in the flight <laughs> You know, even though some of the flight attendants that were working the flight, uh, when I was, you know, stretching my legs and, and, you know, talking to them a little bit in the back alley in this, one of these pays 
uh, what's going on? And I just looked at them and they looked at me like, oh my God, they're rolling their eyes. And they don't know, you know, if I'm the kind of guy that, that likes to kill. I don't do PAs like that. I don't do PAs at Legacy. The captain tries to make all PAs. That's the way the company wants it done. So no big deal. Occasionally a captain will look at me, hey, you want to make a PA? And I'm like, sure, whatever, whatever, you know, so fine. Uh, but <laughs> I don't like long PAs. I don't like interrupting passengers. They're all plugged into the matrix somehow. And, you know, they, they have their movies and their, their shows or their podcasts that they're listening to. And they don't, unless it's important and it's extremely relevant, uh, there's no need for it. Uh, this, we don't live in a society where we're only entertainment is looking out the window <laughs> and we're not flying low enough to see anything anyway. So, oh Yeah. We had one of those long-ass PA captains. And hey, whatever floats your boat, right? But thankfully, my uh, my independent movie device was my tablet, and it muffled most of those PAs pretty good with my uh, noise-canceling headphones on. But yep, there was another one, long-ass PA flight. You better shut your mouth before I shut it for you. And that brings us to the next day. I was also deadheading, meaning I was being paid to fly. But this time, I was a must-ride jump seat. So, got to the counter, introduced myself to the Czech airman, to my captain. You know, we all kind of talked about what we were going to do and what was involved in this, you know, Latin terrain qualification. And I said, well, you know, I better go, you know, check with the gate agent and get my, my boarding card that allows me to sit in the jump seat in the cockpit. So as a working crew member, so go over there and the girl's like, well, you know, it, it issued you a seat. I'm like, I understand. But if you look at the, at the documentation, I'm a must ride jump seat. She said, well, I don't know how to do that. She says, I'm like, well, I don't think you can do that. You have to call operations. Operations has to clear it. And then they put me in the jump seat. And so you got to make a phone call. That's all I know. I mean, I, and she said, oh, okay, but she said, let me help the next customer. So now I'm sitting there for a good 20 minutes during the boarding process. I'm starting to get a little worried because, I mean, they're not going to take off without me. But, you know, this is, this is a pain. And finally, a uh, supervisor came over and she's like, have you been helped? And I'm like, well, I'm waiting for her. And she's like, oh, yeah, I, I can't get, I don't know how to do this. And so she, she's like, well, just go down and we'll fix it. We'll bring you the documentation because we have to call operations. Like, exactly. So we, we, we took care of the situation. It was a little bit of a headache, but, you know, got in the, got settled into the cockpit, did a walk around for the guys and, and, uh, you know, checked all the documentation and off we were. Um, so that's what a jump seat is. A jump seat is in the cockpit. Uh, most of the time, if you're in the jump seat, it's because you're either going for a qualification like this or more than likely you're just catching a ride. You're catching a ride to work. So you're non-revving, meaning you're not a revenue passenger. And part of the agreement we have with a laundry list of airlines is if you're a cockpit crew member, meaning a pilot, then you have reciprocal agreements with other airlines. If I live in, for example, Phoenix, and I need to get to work that's in LA, because I'm based in LA, I need to get a ride. I'm not going to pay for a flight to get me there. That doesn't make sense. So you have an agreement. And the way it works is if you're on your own airline, you can just list yourself. If there's a seat available that was going to go open anyway, in order by seniority with the company, and this is with all employees, uh, then you get your seat issued to you in seniority order. Uh, so if there's 10 open seats and there's four employees trying to catch a ride, all four employees are going to get a seat in the back. Great. They are non-revving. They're not deadheading. They're just non-revenue passengers getting to work because they're just commuting. The company's not going to, you know, pay for a ticket for you. you just, you just have to get their space available. If there is no space available and you are a pilot in the cockpit, congratulations. You're now able, if once you go through all the security protocols, you're now able to ride in the cockpit jump seat and when you're on your own metal you, you still ask we've talked about this in other shows you know the jump seat etiquette and you know you get to sit up there so that's the difference i hope that clears up any confusion about what is the difference between jump seating non-revving and 
deadheading. And for those of you who are airline people, you know, I apologize for kind of reiterating stuff you already know, but this is uh, just a clarification of what I had to go through this week. So we talked about the route down and back for the Latin terrain, the depressurization routes, how to program that in a secondary flight plan for Airbus people, um, and got to see some movies on the way out. But on the way back, on that flight that I took on day three, because I knew that everything was going to be full, uh, I just went ahead and went with what the company issued me, which was a positive space deadhead seat. So here I was. Again, it was it was not a really great seat. The flight was full. I was in like row 18. And here we are getting ready to shut the doors about five minutes prior to departure time. And there was a seat open to my left at the window. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe maybe it's not going to go out full. And and the lady next to me can move over. We can spread out. It'll be nice. But it, you know, last second, about 10 people get on the airplane. And the first guy walks back and he goes, hey, is anyone in that seat? And I'm like, well, no, but I, I think they're still boarding. He goes, oh, well, the gate agent just told me, just come down and take any open seat. I'm like, oh, well, okay, sure. I guess that's okay then. So I get up. He jumps over the passenger that was in the middle seat. You know, this guy's in plain clothes. Uh, you know, he's non-revving or standby. So um, he gets in the seat. And these are all non-revving employees at some point because these are the these are the employee standbys. So he jumps in the seat and I thought, okay, so I guess we are going to go out full. And here comes a parade of of passengers and you know, they all know what to do. They, they just have their like one backpack and getting ready to get on the plane and, and they shut the door and the flight attendants are making their announcements. Hey, everybody needs to take their seats. The sooner we can get in our seats, the sooner we can push back and be on our way. And there's too many people. There are more people on the airplane than there are seats. And I guess in the, in the rush to have their precious on time, the gate agent just told all the non-res, just go on take an empty seat and, you know, go. I'm not even going to issue you seats. <laughs> you have got to be kidding. Uh, you know, not really company policy. It's, it, it goes, it goes uh, beyond the right way to do things, but they're so hammered over these on-time departures. And if you're late on the departure and it's the gate agent's fault, then the gate agent gets reprimanded and it's a big deal. So they're under an enormous amount of pressure from their management or their, you know, higher ups to get out on time. So these kind of things sometimes happen, unfortunately. And so they had to reconnect the jet bridge, open the door and four people had to come off. Well, as the four people were walking down the aisle, again, I'm in uniform. One of them gets right in my face and leans down and goes, can't you just ride the jump seat in the cockpit and try to get these employees on? I'm the last one on the list. And I looked at her, I, I was no! kind of stunned no! that she would no! have the audacity no! to, to get in my face and, and suggest that I would ride up there. Now, I'm not opposed to riding in the cockpit for, you know, in, in an effort to get either more passengers on uh, or, or more employees on because I commuted for over a decade and I, I totally get it. But... She doesn't know me. She doesn't know my situation. I've been sitting in jump seats for, for three days. I'm on a company paid deadhead to get me back to base. I don't even want to take the jump seat in the event that there are commuters that are trying to deadhead, or not deadhead, the commuters that are trying to non-ref to try to get to work. Because if you're a positive space uh, company sanctioned deadhead and you take a jump seat, and that kicks off a commuter, that's the biggest faux pas you can do for another pilot. I mean, that's, you don't do that. So here she was like, kind of saying, you should, why can't you just sit up there? You know? And I'm like, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh. And she just kind of like walked forward and then, uh, there was an open seat. So she jumped in it. And so I don't even think they got on the plane by seniority. They just told them all, get on the plane, find an open seat. And the, Three people that ended up having to leave. I don't even know if they were the bottom three people on the list, but it's not 
my fight to fight and I just kind of let it go. But it irked me. It irked me so bad that, you know, I would be put on the spot like that. And the only reason that happened was because I was in uniform. If I was not in uniform, how would anybody know that's not working the flight? Because the flight attendants know they have their tablets. They know who's sitting where, or at least where they're supposed to. So I kind of took about five minutes of sitting there quietly. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to put in my earbuds. I got a couple podcasts downloaded. I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen because part of me felt like I should go out of my way for my fellow employees. But that is not the way to do it. I mean, approaching me, a gate agent approaching me saying, hey, do you mind sitting in the cockpit jump seat? You know, it, I would have said, oh, if it gets another employee on, sure. But that's not what happened, you know? And so I was I was really upset for about five minutes, like I said. I popped in some earbuds and started listening to my, one of my favorite podcasts, and I kind of calmed down pretty quick and <laughs> didn't really worry about it. That is until... We got up to about 10,000 feet, and I had my tablet resting on the seat back and tray table in front of me, and I'm listening, and I'm, I'm kind of, my eyes are opening, and just the guy in front of me, full speed, whack! He reclines his seat so fast, my laptop comes flying, hits me in the chest, my tray table's kind of like <laughs> under stress, and he just full on back inches from my face i mean now i'm breathing heavy because i was shocked upset and kind of breathing heavy enough to where he can feel my breath on the top of his head <laughs> and waiting for him to turn oh excuse me or something nothing nothing and again i'm in uniform i'm the only deadheading uniform guy on the plane i think i'm learned my lesson Ladies and gentlemen, I think the deadheading in uniform is going to come to an end, whether that's me changing in the bathroom or something, because, you know, again, I let it go. And I thought, okay, it's fine. I'll recline my seat a little bit. So, you know, I did the right thing. I turned around, looked at the guy behind me, said, I'm going to recline. And he's like, oh, sure. And so I came back halfway, nice and slow, not to knock over anything. And I thought it was over. So... A couple hours into the flight, I, you know, I get up, I, I stretch my legs. I'm using the uh, the uh, the lav. Got a couple snacks from the uh, flight attendant crew, and return to my seat. And now I'm plugged in and watching a movie I downloaded. And in the middle of the movie, the guy in front of me who's trying to sleep but now is very uncomfortable, so he's banging against the seat back, <laughs> trying to trying to get comfortable, and I. At this point, I'm like, I'm going to say something to this guy. And um, <laughs> you, are you comfortable? And he just <clears throat> pretends not to hear me. I'm like, are you done? <laughs> he pretends not to hear me. <laughs> just let it go. Because now the lady next to me is like looking at me like, oh, shit. Like, you know, what's going to happen here? I'm like, okay. I let it go. You know, I, I chalk it up to uh, to good karma and and picking my battles. But... <laughs> It gets it gets really frustrating. So please, ladies and gentlemen, if you're riding as a passenger in the back of an airplane and you decide to recline your seat, use some decorum, take a look before you go and just slam the seat back. I mean, luckily I didn't have a drink uh, or a hot drink or coffee, which I usually do have at some point because it would have been all over the place. <laughs> or maybe I need a little spray bottle and you know, just like start squirting people in front of me in the top of the head. Like I do like with my cats, so like, no, bad, bad cat. <laughs> so yeah, passengers behaving badly. Don't recline your seat like that, ladies and gentlemen. Please use some decorum. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand that? What the hell is wrong with you? So normally I try to watch films that have something to do with aviation just so I can give them a good review or, or you know, a fair review for the show. Uh, but since I was uh, sitting in the back of airplanes quite a bit this week, I did see a few films in the in-flight entertainment system. 
the first one I saw was a film named Gemini Man. Uh, it's a film that came out last year in 2019 starring Will Smith, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Clive Owen, and Benedict Wong. Uh, the film is about a hitman who's trying to retire and the government uh, basically is trying to take him out. And, uh, you know, interesting plot, nothing really very unique but it was an interesting film uh i like will smith films generally speaking uh did a little research on this film turns out that it was originally conceived in 1997 and went through a lot of development issues for 20 years uh, several directors uh that went through the process tony scott curtis hansen joe carmen and uh, they were all attached to the film at one point or another. Uh, and they had numerous actors that they were thinking about uh, making f uh, for the lead there. Uh, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, and even Sean Connery were set to star. Uh, but they ended up uh, with Ang Lee for a director and Will Smith. So, you know, pretty in interesting concept. They clone the main character and somehow they send in the clone to Will Smith's character to take him out, who's supposed to be the the badder, younger version, you know? Um, and you can imagine the action sequences are pretty impressive. Even on the, the small screen that I had uh, to watch this on on the back of the airplane, but uh, it was, it was good. It was a good concept. A lot of CGI work. Um, in the end, it was a little Hollywood-ish ending, you know, uh, kind of like the happy ending. Um, granted, it wasn't completely washed out as some Hollywood films are, but, you know, this movie was uh, produced in IMAX and what they call uh, HFR, or high frame rate. So if you had the opportunity to see this in Adobe Cinema or IMAX Cinema, you really were going to get your money's worth. Uh, but, you know, seeing it on small screen doesn't take away uh, the fact that it's an interesting storyline. There are great special effects, and I really did enjoy it. So for an action uh, film, uh, it was the typical kind of Hollywood Will Smith formula uh, with, you know, a lot of popcorn sales on this one because, you know, with uh, the more action, the more popcorn you go through. So, yeah, good film. I, I recommend it. The other movie I saw on that first Deadhead I took this week uh, was one that I've been meaning to watch for quite some time, and I just really haven't gotten down to it. And it is directed by one of my absolute favorite uh, directors, Quentin Tarantino. And it's a film entitled Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a, a 2019, they're titling it as a comedy drama film written and directed by Tarantino. It was produced by Columbia Pictures and the Bona Film Group, also by Heyday Films and Via Sona Romantica, uh, and distributed by Sony Pictures releasing. Um, good film. It was one of those movies where it had that Tarantino formula of non-chronological storyline. Um, so a lot of flashbacks, flash forwards, and it's an all-star cast. You know, he, he doesn't shy away from using, you know, a lot of characters in his films. Um, the Brad Pitt, uh, Di DiCaprio, uh, Margot Robbie, Zoe Bell, Kurt Russell, uh, and quite some more, uh, joined the film and the principal photography, lasted from June through November around Los Angeles. And this is a period piece from the 1960s. And so it was really nice, especially, you know, being a LA uh, resident to see some of these, you know, cuts and, and shots that show uh, a different time in Los Angeles and a different period. They also did a very... Uh, good job, I think, with the writing and the storyline. You know, you can expect nothing less from Tarantino. The plot was very good. Uh, they included a lot of, 
you know, historical events that were happening in 1969 in, uh, in old Hollywood. And, you know, obviously they hinted to some of the uh, characters um, and the real life versions of them uh, with the Manson family in there and the events that led up to uh, attempted murder and, you know, and then the washed up uh, movie stars and spaghetti westerns and Italian filming and it, it just an amazing uh, expression of what an interpretation of old Hollywood was like from Tarantino. Uh, really good film, it, not for the kiddos, you know, it's an adult style film and they have a lot of uh, uh, kind of adult themes in there where they talk about the the Playboy Mansion and, you know, some of these characters that they're, they're representing in this film uh, have to do with uh, some real movie stars that were around in that time. Bruce Lee, uh, Steve McQueen, you know, uh, Roman Polanski is represented here. And so the film is, is, is a good film with an all-star cast that gives you kind of... <laughs> Um, cross between historical fact and his, and fiction. What's I think more important than just the storyline is the fact that the technique Tarantino uh, used and collaborated with cinematographer Robert Richardson. Uh, he was quoted as saying to Richardson that he wanted the film to feel retro, but he also wanted it to be contemporary. So Richardson decided to shoot in Kodak 35 millimeter and Panavision camera lenses. Uh, this is not done anymore. You know, nowadays you go see a film, it's all shot digitally with high resolution cameras and, you know, you go see it on the big screen and it's all, you know, high def, high res, IMAX. And this film, they even used sequences with a super eight and a 16 millimeter ectochrome, uh, camera and film. Uh, they shot some old, uh, the, the black and white, uh, country, um, Western film sequences uh, that were in the film were done on eight and 16 mil. So when you're seeing this on a, on a screen, it, it really does look like old movies and not just, oh, they shot it in digital and then they added a filter and, and made it look like you're watching an old Western. So it, it really was a nice, subtle uh, technique used, visually very pleasing. And, you know, from Tarantino's history, and as a former film student myself, uh, you know, you look at these kind of details and they, you know, they catch your eye. You're like, oh, how do they do that? And then you go back and do a little research. And it's really nice to see that he really is a true artist in directing and storytelling. Um, you know, so good Tarantino film and highly recommend Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So one last story to tell uh, about my my last deadhead there on day day three. Uh, land in Los Angeles, and you know we are about ten minutes ahead of schedule, so on time. And as soon as the seatbelt sign gets turned off, what does everybody do? They always you know get up. At least the passengers that are in the aisle seat, they always get up. And I can understand you've been sitting for hours and you want to get up and stretch a little bit, but of course that it becomes an issue towards the rear of the aircraft because you, know, you have people that they freak out. They want to get off and they want to get off now. They don't, they don't want to sit and wait until the people in front of them have vacated the aircraft. So, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, quietly and, and the gal next to me says, excuse me, sir. Um, can, can I get out? I, I have a tight connection. <laughs> okay, Sure. Yeah, no problem. So I stand up and, you know, try to move back. And of course, the aisle's full of people and everyone is trying to get their bags down from the overhead and people are getting, you know, bunked in the head and, and it, it's getting uncomfortably close to the people next to them. And yeah, what what are you going to do? You know, she, she got up, she went in the overhead bin and 
knocked a couple of people in the shoulder and got her bag down. And then she proceeded to stand there for about 11 minutes before <laughs> people in front of her in the aisle were able to, you know, collect their things and get off the plane. So, look, if you got a tight connection, I totally get it. You know, and if it's an international connection, you, you're going to be stuck you know, make some arrangements with the flight attendants. Maybe they can, you know, move you towards the front of the airplane if there's a seat available so that after landing you can get off the plane faster. But odds are you, you, that's it. You know, if you're in the back of the plane, you're going to have to wait like the rest of us. And getting that nervous and uncomfortable about making a tight connection, well, wait a minute, we were early to the gate. So, you know, why do you have a tight connection? Yeah, but I digress. Uh <laughs> <laughs> this show has been interesting and I do appreciate uh, all of you, you know, hanging out and listening to this aviator talk about his journey this last week with the, the four wonderful deadheads in order to get qualified for Latin terrain training. Well, that just about does it for episode 18 of Squawk Ident. Are you enjoying Squawk Ident? Uh, I'd love to hear about it. Please don't hesitate to send feedback, whether it's on social media pages or if it's through uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or however you're listening to this podcast, send us some feedback. Uh, the best way is to go right through the Aviator Tony website at www.aviatortony.com. And from there, you can send messages, you can check out episodes. The album art is there, and coming soon to the Aviator Tony website is going to be a new tab that highlights the Aviator Sound Studios. I'll be putting photos up there and eventually some videos on how to get started with podcasting, some of the equipment that I used, and how I developed this podcast. I'm still relatively new to the podcast world. It's only been about four months since the development of this show, and it has been a wonderful experience of learning new techniques, learning new programs, and getting out there and marketing. A very special shout out to a talented and amazing illustrator, Miss Mia, my 13-year-old daughter, for designing the Aviator Sound Studios logo, which will be placed soon on the website. To all the other supporters and friends and family and listeners that have reached out to give me feedback and advice and just it has been very well received and I thank you very much. For faster access to the website, you can appify the website. So just go to the website and then either on your mobile device or your tablet and then just add the bookmark to your home tab, your home screen. And from there, you can just click on it and go right to the website. If you're a Spotify listener, you can sponsor or give audio feedback directly through the Spotify app. And from there, you can share, like, and subscribe to the Squawk Ident podcast. In closing, I'd like to thank all of you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. 